this is this could be honestly i reckon this is this 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 story has given me the most hope in humanity than anything else that we've read on this fairly aimed podcast i could stop here and this would be the pinnacle but we won't we continue every monday 3 p.m shout out Set, set your bloody reminder, set your alarm clocks. So welcome to episode 16 of the Fairly Lame Podcast. My name is Dom, and each and every week we go over only feel-good, positive, environmental, conservation, uh, sustainability stories, not from just here in Australia, but all over the world. Bit of an announcement too before we get into our topics for today, that over Christmas, some of your favourite podcasts might be taking a bit of a spell, a bit of a time off, uh, but the Fairly Lame Podcast continues to keep turning up, keep pumping through the new year into uh, next year, the foreseeable foreseeable future. Uh, So each Monday at 3pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time, bringing you heaps of good news some of them will have to be recorded in advance, so some of the news stories might be a week late, something like that, uh, and they might be a little shorter, hopefully still around the 30-minute mark, should be entertaining, and uh, yeah, give you a weekly dose of feel-good, and as always, over on the Instagram, at fairlylame underscore, we'll keep pumping up our top stories of the day, uh, and you know what, follow over on uh, TikTok, subscribe to YouTube, wherever you may be as well. But for today's stories... Uh, And all the links to these stories will be down in the bio description below if you want to have a read yourself. And the timestamps are down in the bio or description as well if you want to skip to a certain story. So the first one is new techniques are being used to conserve the call of the critically endangered region Honeyeater. Then how indigenous rangers are literally fighting fire with fire to offset emissions. Sounds like it can't be done. How does this work? Incredible story. One of the best stories of all time. Very feel-good and wholesome at the end too. um, About providing jobs and whatnot in remote communities. So highly recommend. uh, Not skipping to that story. Listen to it all. But that's probably my favourite story of the week. Then uh, we have installing solar panels over the Los Angeles Canal. Some of the pros and cons of this. Could it be done here in Australia? What's it looking like? What are the benefits? All that kind of stuff. And finally, the International Energy Agency has released 10 points to reduce our reliance on oil to save money and the climate. And speaking of oil, you know, it's cold, it's winter. You might be looking at me if you're watching on YouTube. You might be looking at me thinking, it's December 14th when I'm recording this and I'm in a jumper and I'm freezing cold. Surely that's not a thing. Well, it is. Shout out, Melbourne. Um, And I actually put up a video on all platforms, actually. TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube talking about how everyone, literally everyone, has at least one friend, family member, co-worker, that whenever it's cold, absolutely love. It just makes their day to go, oh, so much for global warming, (laughs) ha, ha, ha. And yeah, obviously, I'm sure not all of them don't believe in climate change, but in saying that, I'm sure a couple of them don't believe in climate change. So made a bit of a video just talking about, you know, how cold snaps can still happen. Could be based on currents, uh, polar winds, whatnot, which I think is the issue, or not the issue, the reason. Here in Australia, southeastern Australia is super cold. Uh, I even read an article today saying that we could have a white, oh no, we can't have a white Christmas because it's going to be 10 days too early, but there could be some snow in December, even enough to ski. Um, Shout out to Canberra. I think it snowed. Back in 2006, maybe, had a white Christmas, something like that. Um, And then another interesting part of the story, and kind of the reason that I was telling this story, is because uh, the article on, I think it might have been Treehugger, went on to say, like, why, you know, why, why do people feel these ways, and why do they always feel like, oh, it's so much colder here, what's going on? And apparently some of these cold snaps 
you just realize it when it affects you and you don't really pay much that much attention to the weather anywhere else, which kind of makes sense, right? And a great example of it is what's happening now. So it's freezing cold. It's been really cold. I think on Tuesday, it only got up to 12 degrees here in Melbourne. Um, and that's lower than the average maximum in winter, something like that. When at the same time, there's all these bushfires going on out west uh, and then there's droughts in other parts of the world. Uh, and there was also an example about in Midwestern United States back in 2019, I believe, areas got down to negative 60 when at the same day, same time, the rest of the nation and the rest of the world had above average temperatures. So where you are, it might be, uh, you know, it might be less cold than you'd think in a more climate affected world. But if you zoom out, always got to zoom out. Um, yeah, it's actually... Not a great sign. I don't know, not a great story to start with. Uh, sound like a bit of a dad slash weatherman. <laughs> anyway, that had nothing to do with anything. Uh, actually, it kind of does because we touch on that fire later on in this podcast. But our first story, the Regent Honeyeaters call is being played at rest stops in a bid to save native bird from extinction. So conservationists in New South Wales' central tablelands hope publicly playing recordings of the mating call of a critically endangered songbird will help to ensure its survival. The region honeyeater could once be found across east, the east coast of Australia, but now there are fewer than 300 left in the wild. Earlier this year, a study found the species was predicted to be extinct within two decades, and its population uh, is currently found near the Hunter Valley and the Capitry Valley, north of Lithgow, where its song call is being played at rest stops. It's really important uh, that scientists and conservationists know where they are. Learning how to identify the Regent Honeyeater is vital and helps with things like nest protection. So when I first heard this idea, I thought the idea about playing the song was that birds in the wild, like any Regent Honeyeaters in the wild, would hear the song and then mimic it. But apparently that's not the case. It's actually just so us uh, battlers, us Aussie battlers out there on their family holiday and whatnot, they learn to recognise the call. Um, so if we can protect nests and increase the number of juvenile birds that are being born in the wild while doing habitat enhancement projects like tree planting, we should be able to secure them in the wild. So uh, with so few birds over such a huge area, we really need our citizen scientists. We need a community to be on the lookout for the Regent Honeyeater. So turns out there's a website. If you go to, actually this will be in the description as well. If you spot a Regent Honeyeater, you're actually meant to report it. So it says here, please report, this is on uh, Environment Victoria's website. Please report any Regent Honeyeater sightings to BirdLife Australia on 1800 621 056 or contact Glenn Johnson at glenn.johnson at Delp. Whatever. All that stuff will be down below. And I don't know. This has just dawned on me now. So that's a Victorian website and a Victorian company. Um, and this is talking about a population in New South Wales. So I assume this is where <laughs> I did some prep for this. I promise. This is where I got that phone number from. But um, <laughs> yeah, you got to sort that out. Actually, no, I'll look up for the phone number. I'll do the heavy lifting. The New South Wales contact will also be in the description below because I'm just a great bloke and I love the fairly lame community, which I do. Anyway, so quite often you won't see a Regent Honeyeater before you hear it. So learning the call is really important because that can actually be the only way you find the bird. 
So Miss Howard uh, works for um, land services up in New South Wales. Says, honeyeater population has declined dramatically over the past three decades because of land clearing. Regent honeyeaters were quite common and occurred in very large flocks, but the habitat they like most is fertile valley floors, next to riparian areas that we also like to use uh, for agriculture and farming. As a result, the bird is beginning to forget its mating call due to a lack of interaction with its species. And you might be thinking, what does a Regent honeyeater sound like? And this is exactly, this is a bit depressing. <laughs> so the album on YouTube is called Songs of Disappearance. <laughs> and it, uh, nah, positive. So there you go. Hopefully some bird sounds make for a nice relaxing uh drive or whatever you may be doing um so often we encounter a lone male bird he is actually making calls for honey uh, of other honey eaters like wattle birds so this is something i misread i didn't realize that he so they're actually learning the birds of learning the calls of different bird species i thought this first said that they were just learning they were just calling out for honey eaters and none were there but no uh they're actually learning um the calls from different species so the theory is that these lone males are wandering off post-breeding and not actually finding other regent honeyeaters because there are so few birds left. It's symptomatic of the critically low population of regent honeyeaters. Uh, in an effort to rectify this, the Taronga Conservation Society Australia and BirdLife Australia, shout out uh, Taronga Zoo up in Sydney, hopefully those lions are uh, <laughs> doing okay, are uh, teaching honeyeaters their song before they are being released from captivity. Males that were taken from the wild in the past 10 years are making the proper calls and some younger males are learning from those older ex-wild birds. When these birds are released into the wild, they're making the right sounds to attract wild females. That's very interesting. So I wonder if they... So it's all about attracting other birds with the call. It's not about finding them in terms of establishing, establishing flocks. But I wonder if... Uh, so they said they've been making the calls of wattle birds... I wonder if there's any... I mean, maybe they can't cross-breed or whatever, but I wonder if the female wattlebirds would come and then see it's a regent honeyeater and run away. But if you don't know what a regent honeyeater looks like, definitely rec uh, look them up. They look incredible. So, uh, this is a bit of information about what Taronga Cons Conservation Society is doing for our regent honeyeater. So, 50 of them were released uh, on... 6th of December 2022. So the wild population of one of Australia's rarest birds is being boosted after the release of 50 conservation bred birds on Wanarua country in the lower Hunter Valley this week. The region honeyeater used to flock in its thousands from Queensland to South Australia, but now there are only around 300 birds left in the wild. We're releasing conservation bred birds to boost numbers in the wild as a part of a national effort to save this critically endangered species. We recently learnt that wild regent honeyeaters are losing their song culture because there are fewer older birds for young regent honeyeaters to learn from. The ability for the regent honeyeater to sing and call is vital to attracting a mate, and the introduction of the Taronga Zoo bred birds will give these wild birds the chance to learn their songs again, find mates, and ensure the species can survive and thrive into the future. So, back in 2021 as well, 
58 Regent Honey Eaters were released in the Lower Hunter Valley, uh, the same place that these 50 went out. Uh, and breeding activity was documented along with assimilation of zoo-bred birds into wild flocks. The breeding program is led by Taronga Conservation Society Australia, BirdLife Australia, and the New South Wales Government's uh, $175 million Saving Our Species program. The Taronga Conservation Society, uh, Australia Wildlife Conservation Officer, gee, how many titles? Uh, Monique Van Sluice said almost 600 Regent honey eaters have been bred at Taronga Zoo, Sydney, and Taronga Western Plains Zoo since 2000. So, BirdLife Australia's New South Wales Woodland Manager said around 39 birds will be monitored up for 10 weeks, up to 10 weeks, by BirdLife Australia. Uh, and it will involve a small radio tracking crew following transmitter signals and recording individual bird locations and behavior to understand survival, breeding attempts, and dispersal patterns. It's incredibly rewarding to see zoo-bred birds from mixed flocks with wild birds to know this fledgling stock or fledgling flock rather is supported by so many agencies, groups, and communities around Australia. And so now we transition from a feel-good story about some very cute birds to surprisingly a very wholesome and very interesting story about using traditional burning methods uh, to yeah, offset bloody flights and emissions. So the hot, sweaty science that ensures ticking the carbon neutral box really reduces greenhouse gas emissions. It's hard to believe that ticking a box and paying an extra fee when you can buy an airline ticket can make your flight carbon neutral. Also, do this with your uh, energy too if you got the chance, depending on what company you're with. Some of them let you tick a box. I think, it, like for me, it's like a dollar extra a month and they make it carbon neutral. But some airlines are using that money to buy carbon credits from indigenous ranger groups who then fund bushfire management in northern Australia. Researchers and rangers are producing peer-reviewed science that shows indigenous fire management practices can prevent greenhouse gas emissions as well as protect native plants and animals. And it seems a bit counterintuitive. How can you prevent greenhouse gas emissions by literally starting fires. Well, this is what we're gonna learn about. So Carmen Yates from the Charles Darwin University Center for Bush Fire Research says that 10 million tons of carbon has already been cut from global emissions over the past decade by rangers preventing hot wildfires in tropical savannas. We commonly had very large areas burn in excess of 10,000 kilometers squared. In areas that have had fire management projects, you don't see those sorts of fires anymore. So picture the lads getting around it, looking good. Um, Jared Holmes is an environmental scientist who worked with indigenous land managers coordinating the research behind carbon emissions reduction through fire management. And he says carbon credits can fund the work of ranger groups, uh, mostly by reinstating the traditional fire practices and getting out more in the cooler times of the year when it's not too cold and windy. And so this is a good example of how important conditions are uh, and I guess control methods when it comes to planned burns. So in a few recent years, not, not too recent years, but back around 2019 when we had the more devastating bushfires here in Australia, a lot of people coming out, why isn't there more planned burns, back burns, all this kind of stuff. A lot of it has to do with conditions because if it's too hot... Um, Fire can escape, more of a chance to get out of control if it's too windy, all those sorts of things, right? Uh, and it's also, there's a bit of, actually don't bet on this, we hope this doesn't happen, but I think next summer is meant to be really bad for bushfires because there's like a pattern of the last time there were three 
La Ninas in a row, they were pretty hectic. <laughs> they were pretty severe bushfires, not the first year out of it, but the second year. I think that goes back to 2003 bushfires, and I think in 2009, if there were bushfires as well, I don't know if that was Black Saturday, um, or 2012, one of those years. Um, so yeah, the next couple summers might be a bit hairy. But this is why uh, we need to be smart and stick to our guns and stick to the science or, I mean, not stick to it because apparently it doesn't work as it is. So maybe even, you know, pulling the reins even tighter when it comes to prescribed burns after a fire out in Western Australia uh, escaped its containment lines. So this fire, again, all these articles down below, we won't have too much of a look at this one in particular, but the fire burnt more than 25,000 hectares of wilderness forest near Wal, a Walpole, on Western Australia's south coast, with the only well, with the burn only prescribed for fifteen thousand, so an extra ten thousand hectares, um, and wilderness areas. I don't know if this is a specific. Let's check that. Is Walpole wilderness area? Is it a legit wilderness area? So this is on New South Wales government's website talking about what a wilderness area actually is, because it's not just like bush. That's just wild. Uh, it's a type of classification under the National Parks scheme. So you got like national parks, nature reserves, wilderness areas, all that kind of stuff. And there's like different permits or different activities which are allowed in different um, classifications. Shout out uh, undergrad as well. So wilderness areas are large, natural and mostly intact areas of land that form part of our national park system. Wilderness areas are an essential part of our national park system. These well-connected areas protect our existing biodiversity in a functioning natural system. So wilderness areas have cultural significance as they often contain Aboriginal sites and possible remnants of the Australian landscape as it existed before colonisation. So there's a few benefits of uh, wilderness areas, such as acts of act as storehouse of genetic material, allow scientists compare less modified natural landscapes and provide places of inspiration uh, in regards to solitude and spirituality. And so I think there's also uh, so our wilderness policy describes the management strategies we use to minimize the side effects or unintended effects on wilderness values we protect and manage wilderness to conserve biodiversity maintain ecological systems limit damage to plants actively manage fire provide social support uh, and promote public understanding and i think there's some some limitations again i'm not too sure how strict it is but some you can only go into use uh going to do like science-based research these kinds of stuff you can't camp there you can't hike there um but getting back to the fire that got out of control, so it burnt 10,000 hectares, an extra 10,000 hectares of a wilderness area. So it took almost two weeks to extinguish the fire, which was lit in late November. The Walpole Nora Lup National Park Association, David Edmonds, said the prescribed burn area was already considered very large. 15,000 hectares is pretty hefty for an area that's meant to be the biodiversity pinnacle for the Wapole wilderness. From there, the fire went into another 10,000 hectares, which was also quality environment. Prescribed burns are intended to reduce the severity of bushfires and to help protect lives, property and biodiversity. The Walpole Forest is a designated wilderness area because of its remoteness, natural aesthetic and biodiversity importance, being home to the largest quokka population in the world. 
The, uh, this burn was aimed at protecting the habitat from wildfire during the upcoming bushfire season. And so it's kind of done the opposite. So that's why it's important to conduct these bland birds uh, with a lot of caution, a lot of planning, a lot of strategy uh, during the right conditions. And this is why some of these traditional practices can be so important. The idea that traditional indigenous farming or fire practices can reduce climate changing emissions may seem like a warm and fuzzy fantasy to skeptics, but it's based on hard science with data painstakingly collected in harsh conditions. It's all traceable from satellites. And again, this had me wondering, well, how accurate can it be? Like, is it just based on the type of vegetation there? Maybe they do a little change analysis, something like that, and then determine it that way. But no, they actually go, they go deep in this. So it can be managed, or it can be measured, and there's more than 20 years of research to collect the data to work out how many tons of smoke are going up into the air. With the help of the Narara Rangers, uh, the Bushfire Research Centre is able to measure the different carbon emissions from traditional burning and wildfires. So the data that measures exactly how much carbon is released in the northern desert is soon to be published in peer-reviewed journals ahead of new areas being added to the carbon trading scheme. Um, so we set up these plots to, so this is where, this is, this is the amount of detail these guys are going into. They're not just, I remember back in, uh, geography, back in high school, good old days, love geography. Shout out Mr. Waterford, uh, one of the goats. Um, so you used to hear stories about how, uh, the traditional rangers used to just drive around in their utes and every now and then they'd just flick a match out of their car into the grassland and that'd be right just to control some of the areas so there's constantly just little fires going so nowhere's growing too long but these guys they, they, they've got a fair bit of science about them and i don't know if i would have the patience or attention to detail to do this but these guys are doing the lord's work so we set up plots and measure cut and weigh all the grass in the plot so then they pick up all the sticks count the shrubs and the trees and then we burn it so think about how much prep, they're not just going out, chucking fires, not just start pouring oil on the bloody things. They're literally going out, figuring out how much biomass there is. And I'm assuming they're going to the species level because different species would have different oil concentrations in their wood and this kind of things, which would produce more smoke. I think that's why eucalyptus leaves smoke so much if they're on a fire because there's so much oil in them. Uh, and then we've done it in the early dry season and we've done it in the late dry season and we can see how much more fuel is consumed. The science becomes quite complicated in terms of the way different fires produce different type of gases that contribute more or less to climate change. Dust scientists joined the collaboration with specialised drones that could sample the smoke produced. It's a really novel way of looking at the chemical components in the smoke, and so we're particularly interested in methane and nitrous oxide. This is what I'm talking about. How interesting is that? They're literally using drones. Oh my god. Put some respect on their name. These guys are doing the Lord's work. Literally. They need to be... Sp hey, once Fairly Lame starts making a bit of, bit of cheddar cheese, we'll, we'll sponsor them. Why not? Oh, offset. Oh, yeah, we'll offset. Once we get it, hey, in uh, 2026, once we get Fairly Lame Studios, or 2025, either or, depending on how bad next year is for the old uh, economy. But hey, we, we won't get into that. Um, we'll offset bloody Fairly Lame Studios with these legends. So, anyway, so in regards to ticking carbon neutral, uh, the new research will be submitted to the federal government for accreditation. A successful result would mean that groups such as the Nag 
Gara Rangers will sell the carbon credits to businesses that offset emissions, including airlines, and further fund their fire management. And so I thought that was already happening. I thought that's what the start of the article was about. But now I think that that's this is a more direct way for, to get their money. So if these specific groups are accredited, they can get the money straight to them. Whereas before, I believe it was going to some indigenous funds and then they were directing the money outwards. And I think that's how it was working, which sounds a bit sus um, if they're not accredited. But uh, hey, it's working well anyway. Um, so the combination of science and indigenous land management makes for particularly satisfying work. It's not just an opportunity to reduce your carbon emissions, but it's also offering employment and opportunities for regional and remote communities around Northern Australia, which actually makes doing your job quite enjoyable. Look at, this is Ranger Elton, Elton Smiler, happy as anything. Uh, as an Indigenous ranger working on his traditional country, the work has also been deeply satisfying for Justin Andrews. When you're working out there, you feel the presence of the spirit of the people who are living there in the past. And it'll probably give us the opportunity of more funding and more windows opening for opportunities and work for younger people in our community. This is, this could be, honestly, I reckon this is, this, this, this story has given me the most hope in humanity than anything else that we've read on this Fairly Aim podcast. I could stop here and this would be the pinnacle, but we won't. We continue every Monday, 3pm, shout out. Set, set your bloody reminder. Set your alarm clocks. Um, yeah, again, all the links down below. Um, that's super interesting. Again, I didn't realize the complexity that went into it because, again, growing up through school and uh, university, you hear about some of these traditional practices about cool burns, but the specifics going into the amount of emissions produced from these fires. And then I'm also pretty interested to know that you can look at you can count carbon credits or carbon credits can be valued by the amount of emissions saved in the terms of fire, which I don't know, that's a bit strange to get my head around because surely there's so many variables like, cause you know, fires aren't the most predictable things. So it all depends on wind, amount of fuel, all that. So that's why next year, not, hey, not to spread fear. No, actually, nah, <laughs> we're not going down that route. We're not going, I'm not trying to go down that route. I'm just saying, you know, science is science. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. I wonder how the calculations are on the other end to determine, okay, well, yeah, you produce this much emissions, but then how do you say for sure a bushfire would have happened if you need to do that? You know what I mean? I want to get one of these shirts too. That'd be sick. I wonder why the, oh, does that bloke have it? Oh, he doesn't have his name. Maybe he's a rookie. He's a bloody, uh, what do they say? Still wet behind the ears or whatever. He's a greenhorn. In the uh, language of uh, Deadliest Catch, which isn't the best. Um, anyway, not going into it. <laughs> so, my beloved and valued listeners of the Fairly Lame podcast, before we get into this next episode, please make sure to subscribe and like if you're listening over on YouTube. But wherever you may be listening, please also uh, follow over on TikTok and Instagram at Fairly Lame underscore. Post uh, five days a week, my favorite feel-good, environmental, conservation, eco-friendly, sustainable, whatever, whatever you want to call it, stories from the day, uh, as well as go through some articles and clips from the podcast, whole bunch of good stuff. Anyway, back to the podcast episode, back to the episode, back to the news, back to the news. Anyway, so Los Angeles Canals or Los Angeles, uh, the city, is exploring the plan to cover critical aqueduct with solar panels. 
The LA Aqueduct solar project would reduce evaporation and provide power for over 1.5 million people. So, uh, Los Angeles officials are eyeing the relatively new idea of solar canals to help conserve water and boost renewable energy efforts. Late last month, the Los Angeles City Council voted to examine a motion uh, to place solar panels over the 370-mile Los Angeles aqueduct. The gravity-fed aqueduct, uh, surely switch out the words anyway, which delivers water from the Owens River in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains to the city of Los Angeles is nearly all uncovered and loses an estimated 10, uh, yeah, 10 to 11% of water to evaporation each year. That's equal to billions of gallons of water, an enormous amount for a lifetime. That, from 2013 to 2016, provided nearly 40%, Jesus Christ, close to 55.5 billion gallons of LA's drinking water, according to the motion. So Los Angeles is already doing so much to fight the climate fight the climate crisis and enhance our environmental justice goals but as we act urgently we must also think creatively the aqueduct is the region that modern day los angeles exists but we're not using it smart enough so la has some pretty interesting plans when it comes to sustainability we've got a couple up here we won't go too into them uh but so california's climate uh climate plan lays the roadmap to 2045 which is where they want to achieve net zero by which is five years before the global consensus i think most countries are on board to be carbon neutral by 2050 except for china which in the latest discussions they were at it kind of sounds like a bloody i'm a bit of a baseball guy not too much but you know what i mean in the baseball draft at the moment or the uh not the draft the off season people offering up bloody 400 million dollar deals um for 10 years, this is this. And so it kind of reminds me of China saying uh, by 2030. Don't know how that's connected at all now that I think about it. But China wants to peak. <laughs> peak. Shout out Xander uh, Bogarts. Welcome to the bloody Padres. Um, they, they want to peak carbon emissions by 2030 and then be carbon neutral by 2060, which would be 10 years later. But uh, this is California's climate plan which is cut air pollution by 71%, slash greenhouse gas emissions by 85%, uh, drop gas consumption by 94%, create 4 million jobs, and save Californians $200 billion in health costs due to pollution. And then they also have an initiative to move to 100% new zero emission vehicle sales by 2025. So the Sacramento Air Resources Board today approved the trailblazing advanced clean cars 2 rule that sets california on a path to rapidly growing the zero emission car pickup truck and suv market and deliver cleaner air and massive reductions in climate climate warming pollution shout out actually no opposite of shout out uh no i was gonna say cancel but we don't need to get into that suvs aren't good suvs aren't good at all uh i think australia's got a bit of an issue with because everyone here love i mean i'm sure it's a probably a global thing everyone loves suvs they're so much nicer my mum's got a uh captiva and i drove it once and you literally feel like you're driving in a tank and you can just roll over anything um but yeah apparently not the best for the globe especially because they're so heavy i think g-wagons are pretty bad too because they're there's some t i remember learning about this a few years ago there's some tax incentive for getting a g-wagon because it's over a certain weight so it's classified as a different 
it can be classified as a work vehicle, something like that. I don't know. Um, not a big car guy. There's a Bentley parked outside though, and it's literally worth. And he lives here. It's literally he's got a, his car is worth more than his house. Jesus Christ. Anyway. So this rule establishes a year-by-year -year roadmap so that by 2035, 100% of new cars and light trucks sold in California will be zero-emission vehicles, including plug-in electric, uh, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, which I had a bit of a look, and I'm pretty sure electric vehicle uh, hybrids can't be um, zero emissions because they're hybrids, you know what I mean? They've got petrol, but I don't know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but where were we? Back to the uh, solar panels or solar canal. So in addition to reducing evaporation, O'Farrell's team estimates that the proposed solar installation would eventually also provide clean energy to 1.54 million customers in Los Angeles and 6,000 in Owens Valley. So Project Nexus, which is like a little trial project, will demonstrate the feasibility of quote-unquote narrow and wide-span canal coverage of solar panels uh, and ground and groundbreaking is expected early next year on installations over three canal sections totaling 8,500 feet or around uh, 2,500 uh, meters or 2.5 2.5 kilometers if something like this works on the first two miles of project nexus that we're doing there's potential that this could scale to multiple locations and i do have a question about how this may impact the waterways just in terms of sunlight right so if you've got solar panels above the water surely there's no or very little light getting into the water so not great for plants not great great for animals anything like that but maybe now that i'm thinking maybe because it's drinking water and it's not like a natural river i don't believe it looks man-made and to my knowledge it's man-made or actually no well, i mean it comes from a river but maybe because it's drinking water it's different i don't know but where i was going with that is maybe that doesn't really matter like surely i mean like what's the difference between if this canal went underground maybe that's some type of maybe there's something to that i don't know i don't know enough about river ecology or stream ecology anything like that i just know about riffles i can tell you all day about riffles which are those little like rock filter structures set up on Gardner's Creek down here in Melbourne, shout out, and oxygen is higher below the riffles, I don't know, something like that, that were the good old days, honestly, Deakin, if you go to Deakin University, I don't think they do it anymore, but there was a course called Introduction to Environmental Science, and that was the best, that was honestly highlight of my four years there. Anyway, so our last story today is talking about how the International Energy Agency has set out a 10-point you know, initiative, a plan to reduce the global demand on oil. And I will preface this with there's a bit of anti-Russia going about. Uh, nothing too hectic, but I think it's just saying, like, so we're not as reliant on them. Uh, but yeah, just what's it, where's this from? This is from The Guardian, if that helps. I don't really know. I just... Yeah, anyway. So... Driving slowly, turning down the air conditioner, car-free Sundays, and working from home should be adopted as emergency measures to reduce the global demand for oil, according to a 10-point plan from the International Energy Agency. So such measures and changes to consumer behavior would allow the world to cut its oil by 2.7 million barrels per day within four months, equivalent to more than half of Russia's exports, there we go, uh, um, uh, and the global... Oh, the Global Energy Watchdog said. So, ransom numbers, shout out General Maths. Uh, if you know what General Maths is, do not trust me. But 
uh, I was going to say general mass, but so one barrel of oil releases about 431.87 kilos of CO2, right? So uh, 2.7 million barrels ends up over 1 billion tons of CO2 emissions. The International Energy Agency laid out a series of measures it said would help reduce global demand currently close to 100 barrels per day, helping to ease sky-high oil prices, hurting consumers, and release reliance on Kremlin-controlled resources. And I didn't know what the hell Kremlin was. Apparently, that's Russia. So, hopefully we're not... I don't know what we're getting ourselves into here. Anyway, don't come after me, Russia. Um, These efforts would reduce the price pain felt by consumers around the world, uh, lessen the economic damage... more Russia, shrink Russia's hydrocarbon revenues and help move oil demand towards a more sustainable pathway, it said. Maybe this wasn't a great bloody... Oh, I mean, it's coming from the International Energy Agency, so surely surely that'd be pro-Russia. I don't know. The IEA said that many of its proposals could be implemented by governments of advanced economies immediately and estimated how much oil they could save. So we'll go have a brief look at some of these points. First one, which kind of made me take a bit of a step back, was reduce speed limits on highways by at least 10 kilometers an hour. Now, when I first read this, actually, no, we'll read the dot point first. So this would save around 290,000 barrels per day of oil used from cars and an additional 140,000 barrels per day if trucks also reduce their speed. A reduction in speed limits can be implemented by national governments. Many countries did so during the 1973 oil crisis, including the United States and several European countries. So when I first read this, I thought, well, when you drive a car on the highway, it uses less petrol anyway. But then I realized that's just because you're not braking and speeding up that much. It doesn't really have much. Like if you went 40, imagine if you drove like 40 kilometers an hour, how far you could get. Um... So, I mean, that makes sense. I don't know how popular it would be. And I know here in Australia, the trucking industry has some sway, a bit of power. Uh, The old, what is it? Australia stops without trucks, which I'm sure it does. Shout out Woolworths. Um, I doubt they would be too happy with it. Maybe it'd just be for civilian, civilian cars. Maybe we would just have to slow down and then trucks could, but I mean, 10 kilometers an hour. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, The next initiative they tossed up is work from home up to three days a week where possible. One day a week working from home saves about 170,000 barrels per day. Three days saves about 500,000 barrels per day. Pre-pandemic, the use of private vehicles to commute was responsible for about 2.7 million barrels per day, um, the IEA said, yet about one-third of those jobs could be done from home. And 2.7 is again over 1 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions. Next is car-free Sundays in cities. So every Sunday saves about 380,000 barrels per day. One Sunday a month saves 95,000 barrels per day. Switzerland, the Netherlands and West Germany did this during the 1973 oil crisis and some cities have used the measure to promote public health more recently. Benefits include cleaner air, reduce noise, pollution, uh, and improve road safety. I'd never heard of this 1973 oil crisis. Definitely before my time. Uh, comment below if you had. So make uh, so the next initiative, make public transport cheaper and incentivize walking and cycling. This would save about 330,000 
barrels per day. Sorry if I'm reading these numbers wrong. The old BPD is getting me. Um, New Zealand is halving public transport fares for the next three months to respond to high fuel prices, while studies in the US have shown cheaper fares lead to greater use. I mean, surely that's just common sense. If fares here down in Melbourne, if they were a bit cheaper... I, feel, I topped up. Money just flies off your Mikey down here in Melbourne, especially if you've got to catch a couple trams and whatnot. I even scan on, and then it says I didn't scan on, and then I've got to deal with that on the other end. People think I'm doing a uh, Swifty, especially up in Canberra. I don't know how many Canberra listeners we have, but hey, make yourself feel welcome. It's heaven on earth. Love that place. Um, I remember up there, it was like one-way ticket was... Ticket, bloody how old. Uh, a one-way thing on the uh, My Way. I think it was the My Way back home. Yeah, the My Way. Shout out. One of the great, one of the blue cards, whatever. The old My Way. I think that used to be about five bucks per trip. Um, which, I mean, I would take that heap. Because I'm one, uh, or back home, I was one, I was on the same route as the great Southern Cross Club, which would have been unreal. But yeah, five bucks each way. And they barely run. So, I mean, yeah. Halving prices. Incredible. Love that. Uh, petrol prices here in Melbourne aren't too high at the moment. Um, and then they also went on to say that some governments have incentivized people to walk or subsidized bike pur- uh, purchases. Sorry. Uh, all of this would require government subsidy. Wonder how they were subsidizing or incentivizing rather people to walk. Um, bike purchases are sick though. I'd fucking love someone to help me buy a bike. And so this is where it could potentially be getting a bit more controlling. So alternate private car access to roads in large cities, e.g. every other day. So this would save about 210,000 barrels per day. For example, cars whose number plate ends with an odd number can drive on Monday and those with an even number can drive on Tuesday. Uh, Such schemes have been deployed to tackle congestion and air pollution peaks in Athens, Madrid, Paris, Milan and Mexico City. Exceptions could be made for electric vehicles, and of course, one downside is that households with multiple cars could try and game the rules. And then these next couple points are, I don't know, quite self-explanatory, so we won't run through them as in-depth, but increase car sharing and adopt practices to reduce uh, fuel use, then promote efficient driving for freight trucks, delivery of goods, kind of just says drive, drive to the speed limit, don't drive with empty loads or too heavy loads, um... Yeah, don't slow down. Don't have to, like, rapidly brake, that kind of stuff. Next was use high-speed and night trains instead of planes. It's a great recommendation. Um, Caught the train from... I've only caught the train once from Canberra, and that was probably not the worst experience, but it wasn't the best. So we got there. We're trying to go up to Sydney for New Year's Eve, and, oh, my Lord, the price of it. It cost us about 80 bucks, I think, one way, or $90 to get a bus... Oh, no, to get a train... From Canberra to Sydney, which is a three-hour drive, and it was like a four, four-and-a-half-hour train ride. Had to get there at a certain time. Me, always early, always early. Get there around six, right? Go through Macca's, whatnot. A couple of hash browns, double espresso, love and life. Then the other lads got dropped off at like seven. Turns out we had a bus, um, and I was the only one there on time. So if we had a train, they wouldn't have been able to put their gear on. Anyway, it turns out we had a bus, and then that was pretty cruisy, though. Empty bus... Um, sat out at Campbelltown for way too long, but that was nice. And then the train on the way back, oh my God, one of my, I hate this so much, so much. When you're on your phone and you're sitting next to some random and you can just tell, you can just feel that they're looking at your phone and it's not like you're doing anything sus. Like you're just scrolling on Instagram, watching some bloody footy highlights, watching the Fairly Lane podcast and you can just tell that they're looking at you and it's like, bruh, like 
mind your own business. So I had that for a full like four and a half hour train ride. And so I just wasn't going on my phone because every time I pull it out, you just got like the wandering eyes. And because you're half worried, not that anything, <laughs> I feel like I'm bloody digging myself a hole here, but not that anything's going to come up. But on TikTok, you never know what you're going to see. And also, I don't know if this is just a me thing, but when you're at lunch or something, chilling with baby girl or whatnot, something like that, um, you might be on the couch, you might be at lunch, whatever, and you're texting on your phone, whatever, and you just like, you can see they're just like watching you. And just again, you're texting your bloody dad about, you know, oh, I was going to say, just give an example that I probably shouldn't give. <laughs> or it's like you're trying to show them a picture and you can see they're just like trying to analyze your whole bloody photo album and maybe it's just me because i don't know what like i'm scared of what i'm gonna see you know what i mean one of those um but yeah all of that stuff looking at other people's phones no hey and that that's not to go that's not saying i'll get and <laughs> i'm really digging myself a hole here but i love it that's not saying i got anything to hide too bloody put your bloody uh face in that thing put your face in the bloody uh scanner um but yeah just don't like people especially randoms looking at my just like watching what i'm doing and then the final one is reinforce the adoption of electric and more efficient vehicles. That was a very strange end to this episode of the Fairly Lane podcast. But as always, please make sure to like and subscribe. And if you're from a country not Australia, uh, please let me know down below what good conservation initiatives are going on around you, what good websites to keep up with. Because I find it pretty hard to find some good quality news from the rest of the world. Half maybe language barriers, but also just don't know where to look. So if you know, please comment down below. And yeah, we'll see you guys next Monday. We keep turning up for you guys every single Monday. Make sure to follow over on Instagram, uh, subscribe on YouTube, follow on TikTok at fairlylame underscore for your home of feel-good conservation environment-related news. And we'll see you guys next week. Have a great uh, whenever you're watching this.